Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi everyone, welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today I'm sitting down with Liz O'Reardon. Liz is an international speaker, broadcaster, and award-winning co-author of The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control. In 2015, at the age of 40, she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer while working as an attending oncoplastic breast surgeon in England. In 2018, she had a local regional recurrence on her chest wall. The side effects of treatment for this meant that she had to retire as a surgeon in 2019. During chemotherapy, she started an award-winning blog about her experiences and talks all over the world about how to improve patient care. She was nominated for a Woman of the Year UK Award in 2016 and was one of Medscape's top 20 doctors in 2018. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Liz, but before I do, I just want to remind you, if you're looking for some great tips on cancer prevention, go to my website at revivewellness.com. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com and click on free gift. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Hi, Haley. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to chat. Now, first, I would just love you to share your story. Sure. It's... um. It's quite hard to believe. I work in the UK and I was a consultant breast surgeon, mainly just operating on breast cancer patients. And I had a lump in my left breast and I'd had a couple of cysts and I just thought this was another cyst. My last mammogram was normal. I wasn't worried. And it was only my mum who persuaded me to get it checked out. And my mammogram was normal. And then I went to have an ultrasound and I looked at the screen because I do ultrasounds myself and I saw a cancer. I didn't need to wait for the biopsy or the results to come back. I knew, and in that split second, I knew it was big. I'd need chemo. I'd need a mastectomy. I had a fair idea what my 10-year survival would be. And it was like a light bulb went off. It couldn't be happening. It wasn't real. And I had a mixed ductal and lobular cancer, which is often quite sneaky. Mine was actually six centimeters on an MRI. So I had chemo first to try and shrink it down followed by mastectomy reconstruction. Um, And the chemo had initially worked. All the scans showed my cancer had completely dissolved. But after surgery, there was actually 13 centimeters of cancer left and it had spread to my nose. So that meant more surgery and radiotherapy. And it took a year of my life to go through treatment. And I then had to struggle with what do you do when you've lost your job? You're at home. I can't be a doctor. I can't help people. I thought I knew everything. And I realized I knew nothing about what it was like to have cancer. And I started blogging and I started writing. Um, I wrote the book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer with Trish Greenhouse, who's another doctor. And 
I used to tell patients not to Google. And it's the first thing I did. And between us, we bought 20 books, just desperate to find out what it was like to be a patient. Um, I went back to work for a year and that was really, really hard seeing patients when I'd been a patient myself. And then two and a half years after my first diagnosis, I had a local regional recurrence on my chest wall. And that meant more surgery, having my ovaries out and the side effects of that on my shoulder and mentally meant I had to retire. And that was back in 2018. Oh, and, you know, where do you go from there after you, you know, that's what you knew, right? Being a friend. Yeah, I'd spent, God, I went to medical school when I was 18. And at 43, the disease I'd spent 20 years training to treat had come back twice and it forced me to lose my job. And it was really, really, really hard because you define yourself by your career. Often the first thing you say when you meet someone is, hi, what do you do? I'm a surgeon. I'm a surgeon. I think I'm not a surgeon anymore. And I don't want to be a breast cancer patient and I want to help people and I want to talk to people, but I can't do that. And it, it was it was a really low place for a long time until I kind of found a way to move forward. And, you know, what was it like going from being a breast cancer surgeon to suddenly a breast cancer patient? I, it was really hard because my surgeon was a mentor and a trainer. She trained me. She was a friend. And the first thing she said was, I'm not sure I can treat you. As a surgeon, you often treat colleagues. I mean, nurses get breast cancer, it's one in eight women, but she found it really hard. And I could have gone anywhere in the UK. I know every breast surgeon by name. Do you choose a private hospital? Do you choose a big teaching center? I guess in the States, do you go somewhere like the Mayo? But I chose to stay with her and to stay local because it meant my husband could come out of clinics to go to my appointments. And if it was a complication, we'd be close at hand, but she had to stop being my friend. So that was really hard. And I realized there was so much I didn't know. So like I thought with chemotherapy, I knew you lost the hair on your head. And I used to tell patients in clinic before they saw the oncologist because everyone's worried about losing their hair. Um, I wasn't going to cold cap because I get migraines and they could make it worse. And I was actually quite excited to go bold and see what I look like in a weird way. And a, a friend got in touch. She'd had chemo the year before. And I asked her, when does your hair fall out? And she said, well, your pubes fall out on day 10 and the hair's about four days later. And I went, what? I had no idea you lost all your body hair. Just <laughs> simple little things. And like, how did I not know this? Um, and another, a huge thing for me was deciding to have a reconstruction. Now, most patients in the UK have a, about two or three weeks to make that decision. We have to treat them within a month of diagnosis. And it's not a lot of time to go through all the risks when you're still getting your head around, you've got cancer. And I had the luxury of five months and I'm slim and I didn't have enough tissue to use fat. So it was an implant. And it was still really, really hard. Most of my decision was vanity because I used to wear a lot of low V-neck tops. So I thought I'm not going to wear crop tops to hide the big ugly bra with a prosthesis. But I felt guilty for choosing vanity as a reason. And then when I had to go flat, it was really, really hard getting my head around the fact that I can't wear a bra because of chronic pain and I'm going to be lopsided and people are going to stare. And I had no idea how hard the surgical decision-making was. Then I used to say, oh, it's great. You know, you have a tummy flap. It's like a tummy tuck at the same time. It really isn't. So you feel like you really were able to have compassion with your, 
I'm sure you always had compassion, but in a different way. Completely. And it's it's like the side effects of the tablets. Until you, I used to, I was just a bit of a menopause. You'll be fine. You'll grow out of it. And then you get an instant menopause at 40 and again at 43. And it's like, this is not just a bit of a hot flush. It affects all your life, your sex life particularly. And nobody talks about it. No one tells you where to go for help. You don't want to bother anybody. And I get that half the women with breast cancer often don't take their hormone blockers regularly because they make them feel so ill, but they don't tell the doctors. And I wanted to flush my tablets down the toilet and I knew how good they were for me, but I had no idea how bad it could be for some people. And it it was eye-opening. It really was. You know, I'm so glad you brought this up because I had ovarian cancer over 20 years ago. It was 23 to be exact. Yeah. And I went into instant menopause and they didn't tell me anything. I mean, all of a sudden I'm in the hospital, I'm sweating and they slap a patch on my butt and that was it. And I had no idea what I was in for. I was 29 years old. So I'd love to, you know, just hear. So I think with, with breast cancer, if you're ER, estrogen positive, you can't have HRT. So there's no patch, there's nothing. You just have to suck up. And it first hit during chemotherapy because they switched the ovaries off, they made me infertile. And I I thought I'd wet myself because I was in bed and I could feel water trickling down the crack of my bum and down my thigh. I thought, oh my God, I wet myself. No, that's a night sweat. Every hour, on the hour, every night for the next three years, this is what's gonna happen. And the tossing and the turning and the duvets, and it was the lack of sleep that makes you tired. And then the hot flushes where you're constantly lifting a jumper up and fanning. And I realized why my mum used to go shopping every day to go into the freezer while at the supermarket and just look what I want for dinner was getting cold. It was that. And you can't concentrate. You can't be in a clinic seeing a patient when you're having a hot flush and just excuse me whilst I strip off. It is so hard. But it was also the way it affects your, your sex life. You, when, when I had my ovaries out, you have no estrogen and I have a tablet to stop me making it in the fat. So I have no libido. I still fancy my husband, but I don't want sex. I don't have sex hormones and everything is dry and tight and painful. And I still get words confused. I'll call an orange a potato. I get tired, your skin changes. It's a huge impact that happens instantly. It's not the normal subtle creep up that most women get. I remember being in the chemo suite actually and I had a hot flush and I described it to a friend as a reverse orgasm because you can kind of feel it building from the toes up and you really don't want it and this old guy behind me started laughing (laughs) but it's 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 not just a bit of the menopause for some women especially when you're young and I didn't tell patients about it I had no idea what tablets they could have to treat the symptoms I assumed someone else would bother and it's it's the little things you realize you don't know anything about and you don't get trained in as a doctor and I'm so glad we're talking about this because you're right. No one talks about this. I'm wondering, you know, what do you suggest for people that go into instant menopause? I think finding other people in the same situation is really helpful because you know you're not alone. And often it's other patients who've been through it who can help you, like chillo pillows to cool your head and separate duvets in the summer. Think the simple little things like that that no one might know. I found some amazing oncologists on Twitter who gave me a list of tablets that you can have for the hot flutches and night sweats, especially antidepressants when you can't have HRT. 
And some amazing women have reached out to give tips about um, getting your sex life back. So it is safe to use Vagifen, even with an estrogen positive cancer. It doesn't cause it to come back. And that lubricates everything. Oh, I'm sorry. What did you say that was called? So vaginal estrogen. Oh, okay. Um, so it, it's often given for a lot of women who are menopausal just to help because things get, estrogen is a natural lubricant. So without it, the lining of your vagina, your urethra gets very dry. You can get cystitis, you can get painful sex, you can get bleeding. It normally happens when you're aging. But when you're young, it could be really bad. And doctors were scared of giving vaginal estrogen because they thought it will make the cancer come back. But there's a tiny amount absorbed. And thankfully, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, pardon me, have agreed that it's safe for um, women with estrogen positive breast cancer to have Vagifem. And for me, it's all about quality of life. Let me make that decision. I don't want to cry when I pee and I want to have sex with my husband and I'll take that over a tiny risk of it coming back. And using lube, lubricant is your best friend. And there are some fantastic lubricants that don't have chemicals because KY jelly, those kind of things are horrible. They're not natural. You don't want them anywhere inside you. Playing with sex toys and talking to your partner. And I think we don't talk about sex a lot in Britain. We're very stiff upper lip, you know, and it's actually making them understand why your body has changed. It's not their fault. Sex may have to be a bit different. It may not be spontaneous. But by, by talking and reading and sharing, I've had so many women reach out saying, thank you. I know I'm not alone and I know there's help available. That's so great. And so you feel that people have a hard time talking to their husbands, I'm guessing. I mean, I know. Or, I or girlfriends or partners. It's really hard to talk about sex. And I had a lot, sorry, interrupted. I had a lot of women come to me saying they wanted to divorce their husband. They wanted their husbands to divorce them and find a woman with two breasts and a healthy libido because the guilt that they felt and I felt, the damage I had done to my relationship, whoever you're with, even if you're single, it must be even worse thing. How do you date when you don't want sex? But that barrier, you hate yourself. Your breast is different. You may not have them anymore. You don't want sex. You've put on weight. You, you want to push your husband away. And you feel that guilt that your relationship has changed overnight. And no one tells you what to, what to say to your husband or your wife, how to talk to them about it. They may be painful of hurting you. And then they don't want to do it. And you're in this kind of, I've had friends talk about almost like a marital rape. They need sex to bring their relationship together, but it's so painful. Do you go through with it? Do you stop? What do you do? And then it's not the time to talk about it. And it's, again, people struggling to find their way, which is why I like to talk about it, to try and help people get some form of an intimate life back. And really, the most important thing is communicating with your significant yeah. other. And I think if every doctor and nurse told every patient, it's not just cancer patients, but any patient having surgery with a chronic illness, this might affect your sex life. It's normal. There are things we can do to help reach out if you're there. So you know from the beginning that it might happen and there's help available. And you and your partner hear that. And then you can start talking about it away from the bedroom just to kind of work your way through. Not everyone stays together. A lot of marriages sadly do break up after a cancer diagnosis, but you can stay together. It's just, it's communication. And, you know, I was wondering how you feel that you've changed as a person, as a result of having cancer. I, I am not the woman I thought I was. Before cancer, I was the classic, do another exam, do another degree, keep quiet, all work, work. It was all about the patients. I wouldn't say boo to a goose. And 
after cancer, I am suddenly talking all over the world and I'm a spokesperson for exercise and sex and death and I've written a book and I'll do this. And I I found an inner strength and it kind of made me realize, A, as a surgeon, my life was boring as hell because all I did was eat, sleep and work. You have no time for hobbies when you're training. It's really hard to maintain some sense of life outside of work. And I realized when I was off for you with cancer, I have no hobbies. Most of my friends live hundreds of miles away. I have no idea what's gone in the world. I just felt really, I was broken. And cancer gave me time to reset, to think, well, actually, what am I doing for charity? How am I looking after my mental health, my spiritual health, getting fun and doing all those things I used to want to do again? And I am a happier, healthier person for it. But I wish I'd never had to go through it. I think people often need a major life incident to make them wake up and make changes. And I'm almost glad I did it when I was 40, not when I was 60. It's really hard to see what's wrong when you're in the middle of it. I feel the same way. I mean, I know when I was diagnosed and went through treatment and all that, and then I was onto healing, I just really looked at my life and thought, you know, I need to take care of myself and really look inside and what do I want? You know, what is important to me? So I really think it makes you reevaluate your life for sure. And I think there's a great quote from Paul Kalanithi's book, When Breath Becomes Air. Have you heard of it? No. Oh, so Paul Kalanithi was an amazing American neurosurgeon who um, found out he had metastatic lung cancer when he saw his own CT for back pain. So a bit like me, a doctor with cancer, and he writes beautifully about that experience of being on both sides of the table. And he wanted to know how long he had. And as a doctor, you never tell people because you don't want to get it wrong. And he said, people say, live your every day as if it's your last. He said, I don't know what to do with the days I have if I don't know how many I have. If it's weeks, I'll do one thing. If it's years, I'll do another. And people tell you, you know, live every day as if it's your last, you know, fulfill it with everything. That's exhausting dishwasher still needs to be emptied and the bins need to be put out and it's kind of finding that balance of don't say no to anything but you still need to pay the bills and that's I think one of the things I found hardest though was people tell you you look great because they can't see what's in your head and what's underneath your clothes and the scars the chronic pain I live with the depression you get the scanxiety no one sees any of that that is, so And it's true. really, when you're having a bad day or you lose another friend on Twitter or Instagram because they've died and it's, it's really hard. It's the invisible collateral damage of cancer that can be very hard to deal with. And I think I've got an amazing WhatsApp group of doctors with cancer all over the world. And we talk about the crazy stuff that our friends and parents wouldn't get because we get it. So a friend of mine, now Sally died of melanoma. He was a doctor into... Um, IT and health tech and he said the day his melanoma came back was almost he was almost happy because it meant he could stop waiting for it to happen and start dealing with it and I got it and my best friend said you're mad why would you ever want to have metastatic cancer it's like I don't but every time I get a cough or a headache or I find a lymph node I'm there in my head and every time it gets harder to take do you find that That's interesting because I was going to ask you, do you think that's more common with doctors because you know too much almost? I think think we're not very good at telling people what to expect. You'd be amazed how many women don't think that breast cancer can come back. 
it's scary as a doctor to know when to tell someone it might come back. This is what to look out for. It might kill you because you want to give them good news. And I think people live in fear and you can find people on the internet who've been completely well and diagnosed with next, you know, symptoms. And I think it's very easy to make two and two equal five. Um, and I don't think it's just doctors who get scared. I think a lot of people do. Whenever it's that time for that routine scan, there's just this little bell that says, oh, what if? Oh, there's And no everyone bell. says, you'll be fine. Like, you don't know that. I wasn't fine the first time. Don't say it. And they want you to be fine because they can't bear the thought you might not be. But it's really hard. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking about one, it sounds like you got support through other doctors and social media and all that. Did you go for any other kind of support? No. So I didn't meet another breast cancer patient in the flesh throughout the whole of my treatment. When I had chemo, I was in sessions with older people having treatment for hematological cancer. So I was the youngest by 20 years. You get that look of sympathy and sorrow. And then I would feel, how the hell are they coping with it? Because I'm 20 years younger and I'm struggling. Surgery, I was in and out overnight in a side room and radiotherapy. Oh, God, that was hard. There were children coming in to have it under anesthetic and I, my heart broke. And on the top of the radiotherapy machine, there were little cartoon stickers for children to look at. And the, as it, it's really hard lying there topless in a cold room with your arms above your head. It was a real mental mind. I won't swear, but it was. But then you think, God, children are lying here with masks on their heads. I found that really hard to deal with. But I didn't see another patient in the flesh. It was, I came out on Twitter. I used to tweet about triathlons and baking, and I thought I can't go nine months without talking about this. And people will know I've had cancer because I'm going to lose my hair and I'm in a hospital where I worked as a junior doctor. So my husband and I made the decision to tell Twitter the day I had my diagnosis confirmed. And it was one of the best days of my life because I was flooded with support from people I'd never met saying, do this, do that, how to cope with chemo. I had my own secret tribe of doctors going through cancer who hadn't told anyone that would talk to me. And they were my support. Um, I think support is very hard because you want different things. And if you're put in a group with a mentor, you may not get on with them. And, and it, you kind of have to find your own tribe. Yes. You know, what did you I do for support? Because so, I guess in, social media wouldn't have been around then, would it? You're right. It was 1998 and it really wasn't. Uh, Luckily, my family and my friends were really supportive. They would bring me, all my friends would bring me dinners and send cards yeah. and all that stuff. But I still feel like you feel alone in it. You, yeah. you know, no, you feel like no one really understands what you're going through. And did you want to protect them from how you felt? Absolutely. I didn't want them seeing me. Some visited in the hospital because I had a couple surgeries and, you know, I lost a lot of weight. I just, I knew I looked horrible and yeah. I did want to protect them. So my parents moved 400 miles away um, the month before I was diagnosed. So my chemo was done through Skype. My brother lived in Switzerland and I would write in a blog how bad everything was, but I didn't want to tell them on the phone because I knew I'd make them cry and they could give each other a hug, but I was home alone. Wow. And my husband had to go to work leaving me. And he said it made him feel impotent because as a doctor, he couldn't make you better. But you don't want them to see how bad you are. It's, it's almost too painful to share. You want to protect them. 
I found it really hard letting people in and saying, I need help. I'm really struggling today. Can you just walk me to the toilet? Because I think I'm going to faint. And realizing that I'm not invincible and chemo is meant to be bad and it's okay if you're struggling. And I think that's the problem with social media. I think we are very good at putting our best selves out there. I'm superwoman. I'm running through chemo. I'm cycling to chemo. I'm amazing. You don't want to post the days when you look like shit and you've got that awful chemo facial peel and you're vomiting and you just look horrid because you don't want to scare people. But they almost need to know that at the other side of the reality. You know, it just makes me think about, because I know people that listen to this, a lot of people that listen are caregivers and other supporters of people. So what do you suggest that they do to support a loved one? So this is kind of part of my TED talk. Um, It's amazing which friends support you and which friends don't. There was a girl I was at school with um, years ago who knitted me a Wonder Woman doll for a Barbie. It's actually behind me. There, She's on my shelf. I'll show it to you now. She knitted that to me and I hadn't hadn't spoken to her. She just found me on Twitter and asked me for my address. And other friends just backed away because they couldn't cope with the thought. And there's that fear of not knowing what to say because you're not told at school or university what to say. And as a patient, having to accept that people will say things that upset you, but that's okay. It's better than nothing. But my uncle, Um, would send me a card every Friday just to say birds are singing I'm thinking of you and it was people who when the initial flowers and cards set down would just send messages just to check in saying hi I'm thinking of you and I had alarms on my phone to remind me to text various people so I wouldn't forget and just saying I'm gonna I'm not gonna mention cancer unless you want to talk about it because you are still Liz and you want to know what's going on in the TV series you've missed and what's all the gossip. I'm going to talk to you normally because there's a life after this. But when you want to talk about it, I'm here. Because it was the only thing people wanted to talk about and I was just reduced to cancer. But conversely, I was trying to get people to look after my husband because it was all about me. I had a chemo corner of cards and flowers and presents and it was like Christmas for six months. It was only my mum sending him a card because he was the one dealing with the aftermath and the fear. I just had to go through it. He has to watch me. And I think carers need support and someone just to be able to go and offload. And I think it's really important that both sets of people get help. That is such a good point. So you said your mom sent him a card? Yeah. And I I used to say, look, can you just send him a card? It's not all about me. But the best thing you can do, because all you get through the post is just the bills. Just send someone a card just to say I'm thinking about you, you don't need to reply, I'm just here. And it makes such a difference because when you're really ill, you, you don't have the strength to concentrate on anything. But just getting that text and thinking you don't need to reply, they're just thinking of you. It was lovely. You know, I just want to go back to your first diagnosis because it sounded like you were still at work. And I was curious, was. did you... Talk to your patients about it. Did they know or did they have no idea that you're going? To- no. So I, I went for my one-stop clinic. I can't remember. It was on a Wednesday. And I knew then I had cancer. So I went home and I rang my mum and I said, I'll be telling you in three days I have cancer. And she said, don't be silly. Think, no, I will. <laughs> that was really weird. And I, I went back into work. For the next two days I didn't say anything because it wasn't confirmed and those are really really hard seeing people in clinic operating thinking 
this could be me. And that, that was really, really, really hard. And then I went, I had a, I had the day off on the Friday and I went in and got the results. And I rang my colleague and said, I'm not going to be coming in. And I don't think ethically I could have carried on working. I didn't have the strength to carry on working. I couldn't remember anything. I couldn't function. I lost the feeling in my fingers, so I couldn't operate. But I couldn't deal with breast cancer patients being a breast cancer patient myself. But I went back um, after a year. I was supervised for six months in a local hospital so they could give a, a non-biased opinion because my own colleagues wouldn't, couldn't be honest without wanting to upset me. And it was really hard the first time I saw someone get their diagnosis. She was young. And it was like looking at what I would have looked like and seeing her husband hold her hand and the lip tremble and they look at the floor and they gulp and they big breath and write, okay. And I just thought, I can't do this. It, it's too much. I'm reliving it. And every single time I did it, I was reliving it. And all I wanted to do was say, yes, this is shit. It's horrible. I know how you feel. I'm going to get you through this. And I did say that once and I got told off by the guy supervising me saying, no, 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 it's good. It's okay. It's just a small cancer. We have to be positive, but you don't understand. And I wanted to be the breast care nurse. I, I wanted to hold them and tell them it's okay and share with them everything I've learned. And part of me as a patient wanted to connect with another patient to say it's okay. But I had to be the surgeon, the one that had to break bad news that could be the bad guy. And it was really, really hard, especially with younger women, to build up that emotional distance and then go home and think, well, okay, I'm not a surgeon, I'm not a patient. How can I just be Liz a wife? And that that was really, really hard. That must have and been. I, I didn't want to operate because I knew how painful it could be. I was one of the lucky ones who got post-mastectomy pain syndrome, and I was terrified of causing people pain. And yeah, it was it was a real learning experience. And remembering that the one thing everyone likes to tell you when you're diagnosed, and I'm sure you have this, was, oh, you'll be fine. My aunt was fine. Or my sister's niece died three years after having it. I don't care. <laughs> like I have to go through my own journey I really don't give a toss about how anybody else cope because this is me and remembering patients need that and as doctors you've known about their diagnosis for a couple of days you discussed it in the meeting you're okay with it but it's fresh for them and you have to let them go through their own I hate the journey word but go through their own experience before they're ready to listen to other people that makes a lot of sense I remember someone wanted me to talk to another patient that was older and I'm just thinking no I just think I want to go through it myself and maybe yeah. after I'll want to talk tips and tricks are fine but again you've got to be ready to talk and you just have to be mentally in the right place and it's and people but then I learned people they mean well they, at least they're talking to me and you just learn to nod and smile and not get not rant on Twitter that someone said this to you because they they don't know what to say and I think in time, you realize that. But in the beginning, you take everything so personally. Well, I did. So and all, 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 so all the snake oil. I had, you know, people telling you there's a turmeric enema in Mexico that will save your life. And there's a bicarbonate effusion in China and you need to have iodine. And a guy trolled me on Amazon after my book and then wrote to my MP and then friends of mine saying, you must tell her that she can have this. And, it, and I found that really hard as a doctor and a scientist. I go by the science and everyone offering these cures. But I was talking to my mum about it and she said, they just want hope and they want to be in control, especially when it's metastatic and the doctors say, we can't promise to cure you. 
you are going to die before your time. If someone somewhere promises you a hint of a cure, I would throw every piece of every all my money at it because I just want you to live. And you suddenly get what it's like to be in that person's shoes and have to make that decision. So I stop. I, I don't. I, I don't talk about the decisions they're making because I'm not in their shoes and I can't understand it. Right, and I think there's such a big connection with the mind body, you know, connection is, it's huge. So if a doctor says, you know, you're not going to make it, or a lot of times it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's that fine line. Yeah. So before we get into the random round, I just wanted to know, do you have any last piece of advice you want to share with with the listeners so my the big piece of work that I'm really passionate about is promoting the power of exercise and I did no sport at school my surname was ball like a football but I couldn't hit throw or catch one to save my life and I was a cycling widow and got dragged kicking and screaming into cycling otherwise I'd never see my husband And then I got into triathlons and I did one three months before I was diagnosed and I wanted to carry on training and no one told me to, no doctors and nurses mentioned it. And that's not surprising because I never mentioned it to my patients. I'd never been trained how to tell a healthy person to exercise, let alone someone with cancer having chemo. But there were amazing women and men on Twitter um, who inspired me, who were cycling and rowing and lifting weights during chemo. I thought I'm going to carry on. So I did my own thing. I ran and I cycled and I felt better. I just felt like Liz when I was, I did a sprint triathlon halfway through chemo very, very slowly. I was cycling at mountains and I was just Liz. I was free. I found myself. And there is now so much evidence to show that exercise from the day of diagnosis, even before you start your treatment, can reduce the side effects, reduce the complications in hospital, reduce the risk of recurrence by 50% for some cancers. It can reduce the side effects of the tablets. It's good for mental health. It's the best thing for fatigue. It should be the first cancer treatment. And I say anybody listening, if you don't have cancer, then you should exercise every day because it can reduce the risk of you getting it. And if you do have cancer, it is never too late to start. And it's not just aerobic. And by aerobic, half an hour of getting sweaty and feeling a bit uncomfortable, but it's the weight training, the resistance training. Because you need the strength in your muscles and your bones, it's almost more important. So the, the biggest reason people go into nursing homes, they can't stand up from a chair. They spend all their time sitting and they lose their leg and their thigh strength. And I started training for a bodybuilding competition during lockdown because I wasn't doing the weights, using stuff at home, squats and lunges against a wall and press-ups against the counter. You don't need equipment. And it is the best thing you can do for your health. It's boring and it's hard work, but really, it's it's free and everybody should be doing it. And do you say it should be a certain amount of times per week? So there's an international roundtable guidelines on the American Society of Clinical Oncologists and every cancer patient should be doing three sessions of aerobic exercise for 30 minutes a week. And that's getting your heart rate up. And you could start with, I used to listen to podcasts and audiobooks because I've during lockdown, you couldn't walk with anybody and you kind of, I'd slow walk to a lamppost, then I'd sprint walk to the next lamppost to get my fitness up. And I do it by time, not distance, because some days you just feel like knackered and you're not going to do anything. So you don't beat yourself up. You do your half an hour, but you push it. 
You want to be able to talk in two or three word sentences to get your heart rate up. So three sessions of half an hour. The next guideline is two sessions of resistance training every week. And that's things like squats and lunges, push-ups against the kitchen counter. You know, you can do it when you're on the toilet, squats on the toilet, when the kettle's on or you're watching TV ads. And there's an amazing book about to come out called Moving After Cancer by Professor Catherine Schmitz, who's a professor at Penn State, which tells you what to do and how to do the weight training at home. I can send you the links. You can put it in with the show notes. I would love But that. it just, it makes you feel like you're you. You're not defined by cancer. You're not defined by illness. You're out there in the fresh air and it will keep your body strong for whatever happens in the future. That's great. I mean, mentally, it's so important too. And yeah. Yeah. And I feel like so many people that are going through treatment are just, they say they're too tired. I can't do it. But I think if you do it, you'll have that energy. As crazy as it sounds, the only cure for fatigue and I now know what fatigue is. It's cancer fatigue. It's just bone crushing. I cannot lift my head off the sofa. I am never, ever moving again. The best cure is exercise. It works. You don't want to do it. But you say, right, I'll just, I'll go out the door for five minutes and I'll walk and you'll probably carry on. And then you've earned the right to sit on the sofa all day. <laughs> Perfect. So are you ready for random round? Yes, I am. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is... Hearing birds sing. The last show you binged and loved. Oh, Shit's Creek. I was late to the party, but I'm in the middle of it and I am obsessed and I will be distraught when it ends. It was one of those shows I missed so much when it ended. I, when, I, I, everyone said, watch it. I think, no, no, it's not my cup of tea. And oh my goodness, I need more. It's like three o'clock in the morning. One more episode. No, 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 no. <laughs> When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? I kind of hibernate. I switch off from the world. I don't answer phones. I don't email. I kind of protect myself until I feel I'm ready to face the world again. And it's not very good because I don't let people help me. and I'm trying to let them in, but it's self-preservation. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Oh, I'm going to say my my maternal granddad. He was an amazing man and he died when I was young and I never really got to know him. But he, he knew all the bird calls. He could whistle every single bird song and he was just, he was an amazing gentleman. I'd love to get to know him and tell him what's happened to me and how he inspired me. What is your favorite go-to snack? I don't really snack because I'm on my bodybuilding kick. Um, I do like cold chocolate from the fridge and I do like apples and peanut butter. Um, I try to stay healthy. I hope my coach isn't listening. (laughs) (laughs) What's one simple thing that brings you joy? I really thought about this and it's, it's giving up my time without wanting anything back. And I do that at a hedgehog rescue shelter. I volunteer once a week and I spend two hours mucking out hedgehogs that have been orphaned, cleaning up their wee and their poo and putting new beds in. And it's just, it's giving your time and being selfless. And it just makes me feel, I'm just passing the lever on. Does that make sense? It does. Plus I get to hold cute baby little hedgehogs. So it's a little <laughs> bit of a bonus, but it's just, yeah, helping others. Oh, love it. What's on your nightstand? Breast cancer tablets, a lamp, and a lot of books. 
I've always got a book on the go and I can't get past a bookshop without buying one. <laughs> I love books too. What's your favorite form of exercise? It's two, it's cycling and weight training. I love climbing mountains because I can then bomb down them at 60 kilometers an hour. And I love getting strong in the gym and just feeling my body is, can cope with whatever comes. Mm-hmm. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Oh, I'm going to say my husband. He was my boss. He asked me out the day I stopped working for him and he's been my rock. He stood by me through thick and thin. and I wouldn't have done half of the things I've achieved without his support. So beautiful. How can people find you and learn more? So my website is liz.oreardon.co.uk and I have the book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control, which you can buy on Amazon. On Twitter, I'm Liz underscore O'Riordan and on Instagram, I'm O'Riordan Liz. And feel free to message me and ask me a question. I get them all the time and I'm more than happy to help. Thank you so much, Liz. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks, Haley. It's been great fun. Cheers. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.